This is Top Floor, episode 77. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 77. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Eleanor Erickson is a hotel unicorn. She spent more than two decades at the same property, ending her hotel career at the same place she started it. As general manager and regional director of the Hampton Inn in Southport, North Carolina, Eleanor was part of a unique leadership program, Ambassador U, that allowed her to work with and mentor Hampton Inn general managers across the country. In her new role as a consultant, Eleanor fills the gap where brand programs like Ambassador U used to live. Today, we are going to talk about small towns, front desk fisticuffs, and how to keep your cool. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. Let's do it. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Quinta, and she says that she is replacing the general manager who was like the mayor of their small town. Her question is, what should I do to follow this person and how can I build relationships? I think this is a perfect question for you, Eleanor. What do you think? I feel like maybe this was submitted under a different name by someone who stepped in when I left. (laughs) (laughs) What advice would you give that person? So here's my advice. Number one is come into that role from day one as your true authentic self. Do not try to be anyone else. Don't try to be the person that came before you and meet every person on your team exactly where they are. Recognize that there's probably not only like the unknown of what happens during a big transition like that, there may be a little grief. There may be a little bit of That feeling of everything I've known has been shook up and no one's ever going to be that person again. And guess what? No one is ever going to be that person again. But you have a tremendous opportunity to show up as you and to do the things that you do incredibly well. And if you meet each one of your team members and each person in your community as 100% you, you are going to start down the road to an amazing legacy for yourself. I think that is excellent advice. I would add something along the lines of even if the outgoing person really, really, really screwed something up, do not make the assumption that it was because they were an idiot. Yes. <laughs> so right. new new leaders or people like people who take over projects, 
have a tendency to think that the folks that went before them were a lot dumber than they actually were and that the project was a lot easier or the job was a lot easier. Neither one of those things are true. So move from the assumption that there was a good reason for every single thing that happened and now's your time to come up with your own good reason for the next step. Yes, I love that. When you were getting a bachelor's degree in sociology at Ithaca College, what were you planning to do for a living after graduation? So I had no clue. Um, (laughs) I chose Ithaca College specifically because they have this exploratory program where you don't have to choose a degree for your full two first years. And so for my full two first years, I just, I was exploratory and I did find myself being drawn into the sociology and psychology classes more than anything else. So at the end of my sophomore year, I declared sociology. Um, now I, I, I knew a lot of people in the sociology major would then go on to get their masters of social work. And that I knew from the get-go that wasn't my path. So I think I just assumed that maybe I'd go into some sort of counseling advising role. But listen, at 18, I had no clue what I wanted to be. At 21, when I graduated, I I really still didn't know. So um, kind of, I had this great liberal arts degree and I kind of went out into the world expecting to try lots of different things. And that has sort of been my mantra for the past, however many years it's been since I graduated. I was the same. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I know you spent a few years trying out different careers in Atlanta mm-hmm. before you made up your mind to relocate to Southport, North Carolina, where your sister was living. Yes. What appealed to you about small town life? Because I would never have done that. <laughs> and let me tell you, when I did make that move, a lot of people asked me the same question. Why? So a little backstory. I actually grew up from birth till my freshman year of high school in a tiny town called Greenport, New York on the northern tip of Long Island. Seafaring village, right? You know, lots of history in the whaling industry at the edge of the earth, right? You are almost at the exact end of Long Island. So I grew up in that environment. I grew up in a village. And during my 10 years in Atlanta, I very quickly realized that living in a city um, was kind of a big deal. It's life altering. Like you, you don't run into your neighbors just casually. If you're making dinner and you like forgot the sour cream, you can't just like run off to the grocery store and grab it. It's like, you know, 45 minute thing. So I think I had done 10 years in Atlanta. I was, I, I was feeling in my bones that, that that was not my long-term place. And we, we vacationed in Southport uh, to visit my sister and her husband. And I just, it was like the call of the sea. Like, uh, you know, I was just like, oh, this feels like home. Coupled with the fact that tiny town of Southport, North Carolina hosts the North Carolina 4th of July festival every year. And so we actually happened to be vacationing during that time. So picture, if you will, this little town that was quite literally covered in red, white, and blue bunting. And there was an apple pie contest and (laughs) there was a naturalization ceremony and fireworks and a carnival. And it was just like, come to me. So uh, I was there in less than a year. Got I made it. A big move. Yep. It feels like a TV show. Your <laughs> your first job in Southport 
ended up sort of being your last job in Southport because you went to work at the front desk of a newly opened Hampton Inn and then retired as its regional director of operations a mere 22 years later. That is unheard of in the hotel business. What sustained your interest in one hotel for such a long time? I, it was a trifecta of things. So number one, the town itself. It's a great location to be in hospitality and tourism. We are equal parts destination and corporate. We have some really strong corporate base here, but we also have the appeal of being at the coast, being on the beach. Um, and so I was not in a position where I had to think about pulling heads off of the highway every night to, to make my um, occupancy numbers. And I wasn't, especially back in 2000, I didn't have a comp set. So I wasn't worried about being, you know, in the knockdown drag out for ADR and RevPAR. So number one, it was location. Number two was the fact that it was a great brand. Hampton by Hilton. I mean, and this was like, we were just becoming part of the Hilton family at that time. So I kind of felt like I got in on the ground floor of this giant arc that Hampton was about to take. And so working for a fantastic brand that had lots of training, lots of touch points, lots of culture made it really easy. And then number three is our owner. God love him. He's a real estate developer and he stays in a lot of hotels. And in fact, he decided to build a hotel because there wasn't one in the area where he needed to stay. And he knows well enough that he has to let us run the property, right? <laughs> so for 22 years, I was empowered to use the tools and resources from Hampton to know my team, to train and develop my team, to get out into my community and really make it the best hotel in the market because he stayed out of the way. So it was really <laughs> the trifecta. It was It was a really amazing opportunity that I fell into. So I know you left your Hampton Inn last year and did you also leave Southport? So I moved up the road to the big city of Wilmington. Uh, <laughs> That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. So not too far away, but it in many ways, it's it's a different world up here. Um, my, I'm an empty nester now. So the timing was just right to sort of not only step away from our hotels there, but to just step away from the community and, and see what's next for me. Understood. So you started a consulting business. Mm -hmm. Tell us what kind of consulting you're doing and for who. Right. So I, it's funny because I, the, the, the word consultant is, has so many meanings to so many people. And I had a conversation with someone very early on about the difference between being a consultant and being a coach. And, you know, her opinion at the time, which I share is consultant really is tied to the, the end result. We're working towards a goal with you. We, we want to get, we want to move your numbers. We want to, you know, coaching is more of the space of, I want to help you, support you, give you the tools and resources that maybe you need. So I really feel like I am existing in the middle of those two things. My client right now, I feel like I appeal to two different types of groups. One, I appeal to a hotel owner like mine with a small number of properties who probably doesn't have a background in hotels. So they are needing someone to come in and sort of help them keep everything running smoothly. They're not involved in a big management company. Mm -hmm. 
But I also appeal to a small management company, right? So maybe they've got a good, you know, they've got a good regional and they've got a, an HR person, but they really are missing some gaps when it comes to team member training and empowering and all of that and, and really kind of bridging the gap between their hotels and their franchise partners. So that's my one client. It's, you know, somebody who owns one or two or a, hand, a small handful of hotels that doesn't really have the resources to do more than the basics. And then my other client, I've yet to sign a big one, but I'm totally open, is I'm looking at these big enter- enterprise brands. I'm looking at the Hiltons and the Marriott's, and I'm looking at Wyndham and all of that. And I'm saying, I have all of this experience as one of your franchise level frontline team members. And you guys are going through an amazing time of transition and innovation coming out of a global pandemic. And I want to be part of the person that I want to be the person who facilitates the conversations between the two to make sure that one hand is talking to the other, to make sure that we are really focusing on empowering and engaging the frontline team members who in many ways feel very disconnected from the brand name. Because, you know, especially in the United States, the brand is up here and we're down here and and there's not a lot of opportunity for that human resource training personnel mix. And so we need to keep that conversation open and flowing. There's a, an episode, I'll have to put it in the show notes, but a conversation that I had with Tommy Yanoulis to, and he talked about sort of the downfall of the Quiznos brand mm. and his diagnosis was that it was because of a too big a gap between the corporate office and franchisees. So I think your point is well taken. I know we have both heard lots of horror stories about guest behavior over the last few years. And this keeps coming up in conversations lately. It ranges from like, you know, being sort of fussy and needy to belligerent to fully violent, like fully physically attacking people. What do you think is going on? I mean, is there just like a permanent full moon or what's happening? (laughs) Listen, I think it's all fueled by anxiety. People who are traveling today and people who are working in hospitality and travel today are anxious. We're anxious about staying healthy. We're anxious about staying in business, keeping our jobs. We're anxious about, you know, conversations about recession or am I going to be able to make my mortgage payment? Um, I worked for several years remotely. I'm being called back to work, but my family has a whole new groove now. And I'm anxious about what that means for me and my family. So I think that's a huge part of it is we're just all walking around like with our hearts out there. Like, um, so that's, that's a big deal. And, and, a second player, but not one to be overlooked, is the fact that we are being exposed to more and more. We're like voyeurs now. We're seeing a lot more of these uncomfortable and sometimes belligerent communications between travelers and frontline team members, whether we see it in person, whether we scroll past it on social media, where it's just in our face a little bit more. And you can't be totally removed from the emotion in those. Whether or not you're involved, that is, that's leaving an impression on you. Um, whether their complaint was legitimate or illegitimate, um, you're, it's, it's just, just being exposed to it more and more. And so it, we're just kind of in, in like a frenzy. 
And because we we're not quite sure what's happening next, yes, we're, we seem to be out of the COVID-19 immediate threat to travel. But now we're all like, but what's next? Um, and so I think, number one, it's got to be anxiety. That makes sense. It it has to be something. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think a focus on team culture is so important for hotels right now, especially? I think of team culture as a compass. So if you're going anywhere... And I'm not talking a real journey right now. I'm talking about like, if you have a plan in your life, you kind of have your own North Star. This is where I'm going and I need to decide how to get there. Who's going to help me get there? What are, who are the relationships I need? What are the tools that I need? When you are a team, you should have that similar North Star. That's going to guide your team towards your ultimate goal. We want to be in business. We want to make money. We want to have happy guests. And here are the relationships you need to have to do that. Here are the tools and resources that you need to have to do that. If you're not all sort of following the compass towards your North Star, you're going to start to see people sort of break away disengage. Um, You're going to start to see lots of differences between how your first shift person handles an unhappy guest and your night auditor handles a happy guest. The way your general manager shows up and supports the team versus the way your front office manager shows up and supports the team. You're going to start to see people who are just trying to find a job to pay their bills and are not really engaged in the success of the company. Um, So there's this dichotomy that's going to start to get bigger and bigger and bigger if we don't have culture to sort of deliver us continuously in the same direction of our goal. So anyone that has worked a day in hotels knows that we sure do love our acronyms. There are all kinds of programs with acronyms for guest service and guest recovery. So for me at Starwood, those were something called STAR. I cannot remember what that stands for. (laughs) And LEAP, which was listen, empathize, Ask and produce. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You have been working on a new framework. Can you tell us what it is and how it is different? I am so glad you asked. So, yes, agreed. Throughout my 20 plus years, I was exposed to lots of different acronyms A heart, you know, apologize, hear, empathize, all of those things. Um, last, which is used by the Disney company, listen, apologize. All of those frameworks are fantastic. However, they assume that that the problem the guest in front of you is having fits into sort of the realm of the known problems, right? So if someone is staying at a hotel and they have a problem, it's probably going to either have something to do with the accommodation. It's not the right accommodation. It wasn't clean, didn't have enough pillows, was noisy. It's going to have something to do with the service. Somebody was rude. Nobody answered the phone. Or it's going to have something to do with that, with something that's sort of outside the realm of your building, but you know, traffic was bad or I couldn't find a good restaurant. So a little bit predictable that someone would come to you with the complaint. It is 2023 and 
it is no holds barred out there. We cannot assume that the person coming to us is coming with some a complaint or a concern that fits into one of those three categories. As I mentioned earlier, there's legitimate concerns, but now we're getting hit with the illegitimate concerns. Like what, how, you know, how could I possibly fix that? Right. You know, so I've been working on a framework that says, listen, stop. We can't just be in this reactive mode where we're, you know, you come to me and I listen and I say, okay, yes, let me go through the steps. We have to be more proactive and we have to sort of assume that we are going to be part of a solving solution instead of delivering an answer. So we have to come at that in what I call the keep your cool framework. And cool stands for be curious, be observant, be optimistic, offer options, and then keep it light. So just really quickly, be curious, ask questions. You are on a fact-finding mission with this person who's unhappy, and they're giving you an opportunity to take charge of the conversation when you're in a curious mode, when you're willing to just pause and get more information. Be observant. What's going on around you? What's going on, on around that person? Is it more than one person? Do they have... Have they, you know, is there a crowd behind paying attention to what's going on? Do you see a cell phone? Is somebody recording you? Just take in all of these cues because that's going to help you determine the best way to move forward with that person in front of you. Be optimistic, right? Your ultimate goal is to find a solution that's going to make them feel better and it's going to be good for your company. So you've got to sort of remember, my goal is to find a resolution, and I'm going to stay focused on that positive action. Finding a resolution is a positive, optimistic response. Offering options, and, and we've started to see this, especially in hospitality lately, but we can't assume that just giving you your money back is going to make you happy, right? It, it seems that we've sort of outgrown that give and take one-on-one -on -one model, and now it's more about well, is it really a refund that would help you? Is it points? Is it a gift certificate to the restaurant? Is it, um, you know, my firstborn child? Like <laughs> you have to sort of, you're now in a position to hear from that person. Yes, you're upset. What does the best resolution look like for you? And you need to know what you're empowered to do in your business. And that's key because if your management team hasn't, worked with you to develop a parameter for what's appropriate to offer as a resolution, then you you are not going to be able to engage in that. So you need to know when this is what I can do. And if you reach that limit, step away and get some help. And then just keep it light. Everything right now just feels heavy and tense. And you don't want to, you don't want to finish your day with that being the prevailing feeling because maybe this person just really gave it to you. So again, understand how your business is going to support you, who's around that you can call on, take a step back, take a deep breath. The slightest change in your tone of voice and, and your body language can do wonders to shift the trajectory of that conversation. So again, this is really just getting everybody to say, okay, this is not me having to receive all of this anxiety throughout my shift. This is me being an active participant in making sure that the people who are staying with us or traveling with us 
and the people who own my business and the people who work here are finding like this mutual ground of, hey, we love travel. We love tourism. That's why we're all doing it. And let's not let the, the, what's the word I'm looking for, Susan? The narrative about travel right now should not be, you know, unhappy video after cranky TikTok after, I mean, we need to really be empowered on the front line to change that narrative. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we come back, Eleanor and I are going to talk about fried chicken, pizza, and dumpster diving. So be sure to come right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference, taking place March 21st through 23rd at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. For more information, visit hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with a couple of really practical and tangible ideas or tips they can try in their businesses, their personal lives. What are a few tips, Eleanor, that you have for hotels that want to or need to keep their employees for longer than two or three years? What I'm getting at here are are sort of like your situation in Southport where it's a smaller town with a a more shallow labor pool. So Mm -hmm. you can't afford the type of turnover that many hotels are accustomed to and built for. How can hotels keep their teams excited and interested for a longer haul? That's a great question. And there are people who are listening to this who are going to say two to three years. You mean two to three weeks sometimes. (laughs) I mean, that revolving door is like high speed right now. So when I was early in my career as a general manager, I sort of moved up from front desk through sales and then into the general manager position. And I was, you know, learning, you know, all of the different facets of of this job. And um, every once in a while, our regional director would come in and we sort of go through a checklist. And I was often feeling like, oh, no, I haven't really learned how to read the PL statement yet. No, I'm not really good at revenue management, but I'm really trying. Um, and we would go through the checklist and I was feeling like, I'm not getting this. And one item on his checklist was, and it sounds funny, but he said, when is the last time you bought a bucket of chicken for your team for lunch? And I was like, oh, I got this. I can do this one. I said, oh, well, we don't buy chicken, but we buy pizza every Sunday. They love it. They're working hard. And he said, okay, I get that. It's not about the chicken, but it's about pizza. So he said, do you buy the pizza and you go sit with them and eat it? I said, well, you know, I'm lots of times I'm not there on Sundays. My assistant is there or I'm busy or I'm on the phone. And he said, stop. It's not about the chicken and it's not about the pizza. It's about the people. Get out from behind your desk, go to the break room and eat a piece of pizza and ask someone about their day. Ask them about their children. Ask them about their new cat. Ask them about that, you know, hair bow that they're wearing. But it's the moments 
in between the hard work and the boards with 36 rooms to clean on them and the line of people waiting to check in, it's the moments in between all of that where you create that magic with your team. And when you invest in them, they're going to invest in you. When I left in the end of June, I had a night auditor who had been with me for 19 years. My executive housekeeper had been with me for 18 years. My chief engineer had been with me for 16 years. I had housekeepers who were racking that up at eight and nine years. So I'm a firm believer that the very first thing you need to do, there is no tip, there is no trick, there is no checklist. It's get up from behind your desk and go eat a slice of pizza in the break room. That's my number one piece of advice. That's amazing. 16, 18 years. Yeah. I just, my mind is boggled. Okay. Shifting gears. Yes. We've been talking about travelers acting crazy in hotels. And I think there's also maybe a piece of it where people stayed home for such a long time that now they want to travel and maybe haven't done that a lot or haven't done it in a while. So what are a couple of things that an inexperienced traveler should know about staying at a hotel that might ease some of the anxiety or the angst about the process of travel? I think the first thing is just do your homework. Whether you've been a road warrior for 20 years or whether you and your family are going on a vacation and staying in a hotel or a resort for the first time, do your homework. Um, It's easier now than ever, right? Hop online. Google the area you're going to, figure out, okay, when I get there, where are my options for dining? Do I need to pick up some groceries? If I'm going for work, how do I get to my place of business from the hotel? Take a look at the hotel where you're going. Like It's easy enough at this point to hop on TripAdvisor and read some reviews, but read some reviews. Don't just read the top three, like really like dramatic ones, like (laughs) read some reviews. And I always say, call a property directly. Talk to someone who's there before you get there. You're just on a fact-finding mission because if you set yourself up with the right expectations, you have a greater chance of having a smooth and fun trip. The other thing is pay attention to what's going on around you. You know, Is it a mask requirement? Is there not a mask requirement? Um, Is that place where you're going for 4th of July week um, the host of the state 4th of July festival? And will there be a lot of traffic? Am I thinking of traveling to my friend's wedding in a time when there's also like a huge triathlon going on in the area? So really do a little bit of homework. Um, In a funny way, I think back to... We're in Hurricane Alley here. So every year we had to sort of contend with threats, non-threats. Is something coming? And you would not believe the amount of times our phones would ring off the hook. And the questions were never like, um, you know, what's, what's going on? It was literally, what is the weather doing right now? Could be days before landfall, but what is the weather doing right now? And should I come? People want reassurance. Mm-hmm. They wanted someone to say, no, you shouldn't. Or we'll be fine. Yes, you can. Going back to that anxiety, right? Like somebody just give me an answer. So if you're willing to call ahead two days before a hurricane, call ahead two days before your family reunion, call ahead two days before, just 
for your own peace of mind so that you know when you walk in what you're coming into. The second piece of that, and a lot of people don't know this, in the United States, we are 80% franchise hotels. So yeah, we operate under these big name brands. We are individual operators. And calling ahead gives you a sense of like, okay, did they answer the phone? How was my conversation? Like, it's very easy to just assume because I have a big brand name that it's going to be a seamless experience. So be prepared that it may not be a seamless experience, but you can navigate that intellectually. We have reached the fortune telling portion of our program. Yeah. So now we're going to do a little predicting of the future and we'll come back later and see if you were right. Okay. What is a prediction that you have about the future of leadership and culture programs at the big brands? I have a dream about this. So... In April of 2020, when the world was shutting down here in America, the big brands came together and said, we need to make staying in a hotel safe for our team members and for our guests, those people who were traveling. And within weeks, weeks, every single brand had rolled out their version of COVID protocol. They were all the same. The brands got together and they worked together to figure out what is best for our team and what is best for our traveler. It can happen. We saw it happen. My prediction is that as we start to really tackle this idea of, of creating a sustainable workforce in tourism and hospitality, creating more retention and less turnover in hotels, the big brands are going to get together again. And they're going to figure out a way to quickly support the idea of pe- welcoming new people into the industry, training and empowering and engaging those who are already in it. If you could wave a magic wand and change anything about the hotel business, what would it be? Well, first of all, I would change the... um the scale of pay. I would change the way we reimburse and take care of and pay the people who are doing the hardest work every day. I think everything is sort of flip-flopped on its end right now. And we're going through a renaissance from service industry, um, people now sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, this is valuable work we're doing. And now the companies they work for are saying, you are doing really valuable work and we need to make sure that you're taken care of. Um, That to me is kind of the number one thing that needs to take place in order for us to be truly innovative and sustainable. Excellent. I'm waving my metaphorical your wand, wand? Yes. on your behalf. Thank you. So what is next for you and what's next for your business? So what's next for me is I am actually working on a project with the owner of our Southport Hotels to build a boutique property in the mountains of North Carolina. So that's super fun for me. Um, this will be a nice project because... We, after so many years of working within the parameters of select service hotels, which are, they're, they're well thought out. I was going to say cookie cutter, but they're well (laughs) thought out. You know, there's not a lot of 
freedom of choice when you are going down that path. So this is a fun project for us because we get to sort of do some of the things and create um, some of the experiences and spaces that we really dream about. Oh, that's really exciting. I'm really excited about that. And, And for my company is, yes, doing more of that, but really moving more into a facilitation space. Um, when you picture the industry and you've got enterprises over here, shareholders over here, franchises over here, and guests over here, there's a lot of white space in the middle. And I want to sort of facilitate the communications between all of them and improve the feedback loop because I do believe it's a little bit broken right now. Okay, folks, before we tell Eleanor goodbye... We are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Eleanor, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? I'm going to tell you a story about a dumpster. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) Early, early in my days as a general manager, um, I was called into work at about nine o'clock on a Sunday evening. And this is a story about um, one man's trash is another man's treasure. (laughs) I firmly believe that. (laughs) So I was called in a little bit of frantic call from the front desk agent who said, oh my gosh, we have some guests upstairs. They went to a funeral and they were given um, some trinkets. They said trinkets. Um, And apparently housekeeping threw them away today when they were cleaning the room. So I said, oh, well, that doesn't sound good. Um, This was nine or 10, you know, on a Sunday night. And I knew that the dumpster would be emptied probably (gasps) at six o'clock the next morning. So I said, let me come on in. So I came in upon um, getting some further information. They weren't just trinkets. They were Hummel figurines. Oh, God. So highly collectible. And really, there was a lot of emotional attachment. So I did... The only thing I needed to do at that time, and I traipsed myself out to the dumpster and I dragged open that big, heavy corral door and it was dark and it did not smell good. And I started going through every trash bag. Oh, now, no. So they had their figurines were wrapped in paper and like in like a, a grocery bag tied up and it had been sitting on the floor. So fair enough. Our housekeeper just assumed it was so... So here, here were the clues that I had to go on is that this guest was on the third floor and back in 2004, we still had smoking rooms and the smoking rooms were all on the third floor. So I started opening trash bags and, and picture this, it's dark. I've, I've, I'm in the parking lot and I'm just laying out bags and I've got my gloves and I'm just sort of, so I get one bag and it's like the front office. I'm like, oh, it's all paper. It's not going to be in here. This is next bag. It's like milk and cheese. <gasps> I'm like, oh, breakfast and coffee grounds. It's not going to be in here. Ooh. So I'm just making my way. And Susan, I promise you, I came across a bag that smelled like cigarettes and was had lots of cigarettes. And I'm like, whoa, I'm getting close. <laughs> like <laughs> You are at the third floor. <laughs> I'm at the third floor now. And, and I don't remember how long it took. But I do remember that I did find that bag with the Hummel figurines in it. I never met the guests personally. But I know that in that moment, they really believed that someone honored their personal stuff was empathetic about how they felt about losing it and was on a mission to make sure that we resolved the situation. So it was stinky and it was awful, but it worked. And sometimes that's what it takes. 
Wow, that is quite a story. What did your staff think? Like, did you, did people know that you ended up doing that or did you keep it on the DL? Oh, heck no. I told them. <laughs> what you did know. they say? Well, certainly the, the front desk agent that night knew it and they were just like, whoa, that's a lot. But the next day sort of coming in and some people had heard about it and some people were like, oh, how was your Sunday? I was like, well, let me tell you what I was <laughs> doing at 10 o'clock last night. Listen, that's a story that's still being told in my hotel. That story made an impression on the people working with me and working around me is that, well, if Eleanor is willing to go like elbows deep into nasty cigarette butts and stale beer um, for one guest, like I guess the very least I could do would be like, you know, smile at a guest in the <laughs> elevator or do a special turn down. So it really sort of from, from that day forward, it set the tone for like, this is how we're going to deliver service. We're going to just get in it and we're going to do it. That is amazing. Eleanor Erickson, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners got some great tips and some laughs. And I really appreciate you riding to the top floor with me. Thanks for having me, Susan. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 77. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 